Section 5 of Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adam Ullerman. Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 2, by John Calvin. Translated by Henry Beveridge. Chapter 2, Part 3. 19. But since we are intoxicated with a false opinion of our own discernment, and can scarcely be persuaded that in divine things it is altogether stupid and blind, I believe the best course will be to establish the fact not by argument, but by Scripture. Most admirable to this effect is the passage which I lately quoted from John, when he says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. John 1, verse 4 and 5. He intimates that the human soul is indeed irradiated with a beam of divine light, so that it is never left utterly devoid of some small flame or rather spark, though not such as to enable it to comprehend God. And why so? Because its acuteness is, in reference to the knowledge of God, mere blindness. When the Spirit describes men under the term darkness, he declares them void of all power of spiritual intelligence. For this reason it is said that believers in embracing Christ are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John 1.13 In other words, that the flesh has no capacity for such sublime wisdom as to apprehend God, and the things of God unless illumined by His Spirit. In like manner, our Saviour, when he was acknowledged by Peter, declared that it was by special revelation from the Father. Matthew 16, verse 17. 20. If we were persuaded of a truth which ought to be beyond dispute, viz. that human nature possesses none of the gifts which the elect receive from their Heavenly Father through the Spirit of Regeneration, there would be no room here for hesitation. For thus speaks the congregation of the faithful, by the mouth of the prophet, with thee is the fountain of life, in thy light shall we see light. Psalm 36 verse 9 To the same effect is the testimony of the Apostle Paul, when he declares that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 3 And John Baptist, on seeing the dullness of his disciples, exclaims, A man can receive nothing unless it be given him from heaven. John 3, verse 27. That the gift to which he here refers must be understood not of ordinary natural gifts, but of special illumination, appears from this, that he was complaining how little his disciples had profited by all that he had said to them in commendation of Christ. I see, says he, that my words are of no effect in imbuing the minds of men with divine things, unless the Lord enlightened their understandings by his Spirit. Nay, Moses also, while upbraiding the people for their forgetfulness, at the same time observes that they could not become wise in the mysteries of God without his assistance. Ye have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt unto Pharaoh, and unto all his servants, and unto all his land, the great temptations which thine eyes have seen, the signs, and these great miracles, yet the Lord has not given you an heart to perceive, and eyes to see and ears to hear unto this day. Deuteronomy 29, 
verse 2, 3, and 4. Would the expression have been stronger had he called us mere blocks in regard to the contemplation of divine things? Hence the Lord, by the mouth of the prophet, promises to the Israelites as a singular favor, I will give them an heart to know me. Jeremiah 24, verse 7. Intimating that in spiritual things, the human mind is wise only insofar as he enlightens it. This was also clearly confirmed by our Savior when he said, No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. John 6.44 Nay, is not he himself the living image of his Father, in which the full brightness of his glory is manifested to us? Therefore, how far our faculty of knowing God extends could not be better shown than when it is declared that though his image is so plainly exhibited, we have not eyes to perceive it. What? Did not Christ descend into the world, that he might make the will of his Father manifest to men? And did he not faithfully perform the office? True, he did. But nothing is accomplished by his preaching unless the inner teacher, the Spirit, open the way into our minds. Only those therefore come to him who have heard and learned of the Father. And in what is the method of this hearing and learning? It is when the Spirit with a wondrous and special energy forms the ear to hear and the mind to understand. Lest this should seem new, our Saviour refers to the prophecy of Isaiah which contains a promise of the renovation of the church. For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. Isaiah 54, verse 7 If the Lord here predicts some special blessing to his elect, it is plain that the teaching to which he refers is not that which is common to them with the ungodly and profane. It thus appears that none can enter the kingdom of God save those whose minds have been renewed by the enlightening of the Holy Spirit. On this subject, the clearest exposition is given by Paul, who, when expressly handling it after condemning the whole wisdom of the world as foolishness and vanity, and thereby declaring man's utter destitution, thus concludes, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, for they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14 Whom does he mean by the natural man? the man who trusts to the light of nature. Such a man has no understanding in the spiritual mysteries of God. Why so? Is it because through sloth he neglects them? Nay, though he exert himself, it is of no avail. They are spiritually discerned. And what does that mean? That altogether hidden from human discernment, they are made known only by the revelation of the Spirit, so that they are accounted foolishness, wherever the Spirit does not give light. The Apostle had previously declared that eye has not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of men the things which God has prepared for them that love Him. Nay, that the wisdom of the world is a kind of veil by which the mind is prevented from beholding God. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9 What would be more? The Apostle declares that God has made foolish the wisdom of this world. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 20 and shall we attribute to it an acuteness capable of penetrating to God, the hidden mysteries of his kingdom? Far from us be such presumption. 21. 
What the apostle here denies to man, he in another place ascribes to God alone when he prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Ephesians 1 verse 17 You now hear that all wisdom and revelation is the gift of God. What follows? The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Surely if they require a new enlightening, they must in themselves be blind. The next words are, That ye may know what is the hope of his calling. Ephesians 1 verse 18 In other words, the minds of men have not capacity enough to know their calling. Let no prating Pelagian here allege that God obviates this rudeness or stupidity when by the doctrine of his word he directs us to a path which we could not have found without a guide. David had the law comprehending in it all the wisdom that could be desired. And yet not contented with this, he prays, Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Psalm 119, verse 18. By this expression, he certainly intimates that it is like sunrise to the earth when the word of God shines forth but that men do not derive much benefit from it until he himself, who is for this reason called the Father of lights, James 1 verse 17, either gives eyes or opens them, because whatever is not illuminated by his Spirit is holy darkness. The apostles had been duly and amply instructed by the best of teachers. Still, as they wanted the Spirit of truth to complete their education in the very doctrine which they had previously heard, they were ordered to wait for him. John 14 verse 26. If we confess that what we ask of God is lacking to us, and he by the very thing promised intimates our want, no man can hesitate to acknowledge that he is able to understand the mysteries of God only insofar as illuminated by his grace. He who ascribes to himself more understanding than this is the blinder for not acknowledging his blindness. 22. It remains to consider the third branch of the knowledge of spiritual things, viz. the method of properly regulating the conduct. This is correctly termed the knowledge of the works of righteousness, a branch in which the human mind seems to have somewhat more discernment than in the former two, since an apostle declares, when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meantime accusing or else excusing one another. Romans 2 verse 14 and 15. If the Gentiles have the righteousness of the law naturally engraven on their minds, we certainly cannot say that they are altogether blind as to the rule of life. Nothing indeed is more common than for man to be sufficiently instructed in a right course of conduct by natural law, of which the Apostle here speaks. Let us consider, however, for what end this knowledge of the law was given to men. For from this it will forthwith appear how far it can conduct them in the way of reason and truth. This is even plain from the words of Paul if we attend to their arrangement. He had said a little before that those who had sinned in the law will be judged by the law, and those who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. 
as it might seem unaccountable that the Gentiles should perish without any previous judgment, he immediately subjoins that conscience served them instead of the law, and was therefore sufficient for their righteous condemnation. The end of the natural law, therefore, is to render man inexcusable and may be not improperly defined. The judgment of conscience, distinguishing sufficiently between just and unjust, and by convicting men on their own testimony, depriving them of all pretext for ignorance. So indulgent is man towards himself that while doing evil, he always endeavors as much as he can to suppress the idea of sin. It was this, apparently, which induced Plato, in his Protagoras, to suppose that sins were committed only through ignorance. There might be some ground for this, if hypocrisy were so successful in hiding vice as to keep the conscience clear in the sight of God. But, since the sinner, when trying to evade the judgment of good and evil implanted in him, is ever and anon dragged forward and not permitted to wink so effectually as not to be compelled at times, whether he will or not, to open his eyes, it is false to say that he sins only through ignorance. 23. Themistius is more accurate in teaching that the intellect is very seldom mistaken in the general definition or essence of the matter, but that deception begins as it advances farther, namely when it descends to particulars. That homicide, putting the case in the abstract, is an evil no man will deny, and yet one who is conspiring the death of his enemy deliberates on it as if the thing was good. The adulterer will condemn adultery in the abstract, and yet flatter himself while privately committing it. The ignorance lies here, that man, when he comes to the particular, forgets the rule which he had laid down in the general case. Augustine treats most admirably on this subject in his exposition of the first verse of the 57th Psalm. The doctrine of Themistius, however, does not always hold true, for the turpitude of the crime sometimes presses so on the conscience that the sinner does not impose upon himself by a false semblance of good, but rushes into sin knowingly and willingly. Hence the expression, I see the better course and approve it, I follow the worse. Medea of Ovid. For this reason, Aristotle seems to me to have made a very shrewd distinction between incontinence and intemperance. Where incontinence, I crassiva, reigns, he says that through the passion, panto, particular knowledge is suppressed, so that the individual sees not in his own misdeed the evil which he sees generally in similar cases, but when the passion is over, repentance immediately succeeds. Intemperance, aikolesiva, again, is not extinguished or diminished by a sense of sin, but on the contrary, persists in the evil choice which it has once made. 24. Moreover, when you hear of a universal judgment in man distinguishing between good and evil, you must not suppose that this judgment is in every respect sound and entire. For if the hearts of men are imbued with the sense of justice and injustice, in order that they may have no pretext to allege ignorance, it is by no means necessary for this purpose that they should discern the truth in particular cases. It is even more than sufficient if they understand so far as to be unable to practice evasion without being convicted by their own conscience, and beginning even now to tremble at the judgment seat of God. Indeed, if we would test our reason by the divine law, 
which is a perfect standard of righteousness, we should find how blind it is in many respects. It certainly attains not to the principal heads in the first table, such as trust in God, the ascription to Him of all praise and virtue and righteousness, the invocation of His name, and the true observance of His day of rest. Did ever any soul, under the guidance of natural sense, imagine that these and the like constitute the legitimate worship of God? When profane men would worship God, how often soever they may be drawn off from their vain trifling, they constantly relapse into it. They admit, indeed, that sacrifices are not pleasing to God, unless accompanied with sincerity of mind, and by this they testify that they have some conception of spiritual worship, though they immediately pervert it by false devices, for it is impossible to persuade them that everything which the law enjoins on the subject is true. Shall I then extol the discernment of a mind which can neither acquire wisdom by itself nor listen to advice? As to the precepts of the second table, there is considerably more knowledge of them, inasmuch as they are more closely connected with the preservation of civil society. Even here, however, there is something defective. Every man of understanding deems it most absurd to submit to unjust and tyrannical domination, provided it can by any means be thrown off. And there is but one opinion among men, that it is the part of an abject and servile mind to bear it patiently, the part of an honourable and high-spirited mind to rise up against it. Indeed, the revenge of injuries is not regarded by philosophers as a vice. But the Lord, condemning this too lofty spirit, prescribes to his people that patience which mankind deem infamous. In regard to the general observance of the law, concupiscence altogether escapes our animadversion. For the natural man cannot bear to recognize diseases in his lusts. The light of nature is stifled sooner than take the first step into this profound abyss. For when philosophers class immoderate movements of the mind among vices, they mean those which break forth and manifest themselves in grosser forms. Depraved desires, in which the mind can quietly indulge, they regard as nothing. 25. As we have above animadverted on Plato's error in ascribing all sins to ignorance, so we must repudiate the opinion of those who hold that all sins proceed from preconceived gravity and malice. We know too well from experience how often we fall, even when our intention is good. Our reason is exposed to so many forms of delusion, is liable to so many errors, stumbles on so many obstacles, is entangled by so many snares, that it is ever wandering from the right direction. Of how little value it is in the sight of God, in regard to all the parts of life, Paul shows when he says that we are not sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 5. He is not speaking of the will or affection. He denies us the power of thinking aright how anything can be duly performed. Is it indeed true that all thought, intelligence, discernment, and industry are so defective that in the sight of the Lord we cannot think or aim at anything that is right? To us, who can scarcely bear to part with acuteness of intellect, in our estimation a most precious endowment, it seems hard to admit this, whereas it is regarded as most just by the Holy Spirit, who knoweth the thoughts of man, that they are vanity. Psalm 94, verse 11, and distinctly declares that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only 
evil continually. Genesis 6 verse 5 and 8 verse 21. If everything which our mind conceives, meditates, plans and resolves is always evil, how can it ever think of doing what is pleasing to God, to whom righteousness and holiness alone are acceptable? It is thus plain that our mind in whatever direction soever it turns is miserably exposed to vanity. David was conscious of its weakness when he prayed, Give me understanding and I shall keep thy law. Psalm 119 verse 34 By desiring to obtain a new understanding, he intimates that his own was by no means sufficient. This he does not once only, but in one psalm repeats the same prayer almost ten times, the repetition intimating how strong the necessity which urged him to pray. What he thus asks for himself alone, Paul prays for the churches in general. For this cause, says he, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you might walk worthy of the Lord, etc. Colossians 1 verse 9 and 10. Whenever he represents this as a blessing from God, we should remember that he at the same time testifies that it is not in the power of man. Accordingly, Augustine, in speaking of this inability of human reason to understand the things of God, says that he deems the grace of illumination not less necessary to the mind than the light of the sun to the eye. And not content with this, he modifies his expression, adding that we open our eyes to behold the light, whereas the mental eye remains shut until it is opened by the Lord. Nor does Scripture say that our minds are illumined in a single day, so as afterwards to see of themselves. The passage which I lately quoted from the Apostle Paul refers to continual progress and increase. David, too, expresses this distinctly in these words, With my whole heart have I sought thee. O oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. Psalm 119 verse 10 Though he had been regenerated, and so had made no ordinary progress in true piety, he confesses that he stood in need of direction every moment, in order that he might not decline from the knowledge with which he had been endued. Hence he elsewhere prays for a renewal of a right spirit, which he had lost by his sin. Psalm 51 verse 12 For that which God gave at first while temporarily withdrawn, it is equally his province to restore. 26. We must now examine the will, on which the question of freedom principally turns, the power of choice belonging to it rather than the intellect, as we have already seen. And at the outset, to guard against its being thought that the doctrine taught by philosophers and generally received, viz. that all things by natural instinct have a desire of good, is any proof of the rectitude of human will, let us observe that the power of free will is not to be considered in any of those desires which proceed more from instinct, than mental deliberation. Even the schoolmen admit that there is no act of free will unless when reason looks at opposites. By this they mean that the things desired must be such as may be made the object of choice, and that to pave the way for choice, deliberation must proceed. And undoubtedly, if you attend to what this natural desire of good in man is, you will find that it is common to him with the brutes. They too desire what is good, and when any semblance of good capable of moving the sense appears, 
they follow after it. Here, however, man does not, in accordance with the excellence of his immortal nature, rationally choose and studiously pursue what is truly for his good. He does not admit reason to his counsel, nor exert his intellect, but without reason, without counsel, follows the bent of his nature, like the lower animals. The question of freedom, therefore, has nothing to do with the fact of man's being led by natural instinct to desire good. The question is, does man, after determining by right reason what is good, choose what he thus knows, and pursue what he thus chooses? Lest any doubt should be entertained as to this, we must attend to the double misnomer. For this appetite is not properly a movement of the will, but natural inclination, and this good is not one of virtue or righteousness, but of condition, viz. that the individual may feel comfortable. In fine, how much soever man may desire to obtain what is good, he does not follow it. There is no man who would not be pleased with eternal blessedness, and yet without the impulse of the Spirit no man aspires to it. Since then the natural desire of happiness in man no more proves the freedom of the will than the tendency in metals and stones to attain to the perfection of their nature, let us consider in other respects whether the will is so utterly vitiated and corrupted in every part as to produce nothing but evil, or whether it retains some portion uninjured and productive of good desires. 27. Those who ascribe our willing effectually to the primary grace of gods seem conversely to insinuate that the soul has in itself a power of aspiring to good, though a, a power too feeble to rise to solid affection or active endeavor. There is no doubt that this opinion, adopted from Origen and certain of the ancient fathers, has been generally embraced by the schoolmen, who are wont to apply that man in his natural state in purus naturalibus, as they express it, the following description of the apostle. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. To will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. Romans 7, verse 15 and 18. But in this way, the whole scope of Paul's discourse is inverted. He is speaking of the Christian struggle, touched on more briefly in the Epistle to the Galatians in which believers constantly experience from the conflict between the flesh and the spirit. But the spirit is not from nature, but from regeneration. That the apostle is speaking of the regenerate is apparently from this, that after saying, in me dwells no good thing, he immediately adds the explanation, in my flesh. Accordingly, he declares, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. What is the meaning of this correction, in me that is in my flesh? It is just as if he had spoken in this way, No good thing dwells in me of myself, for in my flesh nothing good can be found. Hence follows the species of excuse, It is not I myself that do evil, but sin that dwelleth in me. This applies to none but the regenerate, who, with the leading powers of the soul, tend to what is good. The whole is made plain by the conclusion, I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind. Romans 7, verse 22 and 23. 
Who has this struggle in himself, save those who, regenerated by the Spirit of God, bear about with them the remains of the flesh? Accordingly, Augustine, who had at one time thought that the discourse related to the natural man, afterwards retracted his exposition as unsound and inconsistent. And indeed, if we admit that men without grace have any motions to good, however feeble, what answer shall we give to the apostles, who declares that we are incapable of thinking a good thought? 2 Corinthians 3 verse 6. What answer shall we give to the Lord, who declares by Moses that every imagination of a man's heart is only evil continually? Genesis 8 verse 21. Since the blunder has thus arisen from an erroneous view of a single passage, it seems unnecessary to dwell upon it. Let us rather give due weight to our Saviour's words. Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. John 8 verse 34. We are all sinners by nature. Therefore we are all held under the yoke of sin. But if the whole man is subject to the dominion of sin, surely the will, which is its principal seat, must be bound with the closest chains. And indeed, if divine grace were preceded by any will of ours, Paul could not have said that it is God which worketh in us both to will and to do. Philippians 2 verse 13 Away, then, with all the absurd trifling in which many have indulged in with regard to preparation. Although believers sometimes ask to have their heart trained to the obedience of the divine law, as David does in several passages, Psalm 51 verse 12, it is to be observed that even this longing in prayer is from God. This is apparent from the language used. When he prays, Create in me a clean heart, he certainly does not attribute the beginning of the creation to himself. Let us therefore rather adopt the sentiment of Augustine. God will prevent you in all things, but do you sometimes prevent his anger? How? Confess that you have all these things from God, that all the good you have is from him, all the evil from yourself. Shortly after he says, Of our own we have nothing but sin. End of section 5. Recording by Adam Ullerman, Daily in South Ayrshire, Scotland.